we are missing something if we don't value what historical analysis can bring to the conversation. I am in particular delighted that we were asked to do this white paper by the National Commission on Racism, because I think it will, I hope, it will enrich discussions that what we are now trying to struggle with in terms of structural racism has its own history. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing Podcast, we talk with internationally recognized historian of nursing, Dr. Patricia D'Antonio, director of the Barbara Bates Center for the Study of the History of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Studying the history of nursing has been the joy of Dr. D'Antonio's career, and she believes history is one of the most critical methodologies we have to confront the complexities we face today in health and healthcare. Dr. D'Antonio is one of the authors of a white paper examining the history of racism in nursing that will be released along with the 2022 National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing Foundational Report. The commission's goal is to look at how racism is still being perpetuated in nursing and by nurses and to create strategies to combat it. That report is currently open for public comment. Dr. D'Antonio talks with us about the history of racism in nursing, how historians look at the past, and how structural racism is embedded in nursing's origin story. All right, so Dr. D'Antonio, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, This is obviously a topic, the history of racism in nursing, that is very near and dear, not only to my heart, but I think to a lot of other nurses as well. So why don't you start with telling us what brought you into nursing? Well, it is not a conventional story. I was actually an English and history major in college. Um, When I decided in my junior year, I was not probably going to be able to support myself as a history and English major in the 1970s. So for very practical reasons, I transferred to the nursing school at Boston College. To my delight and luck, I just fell in love, not only with nursing, but with psychiatric nursing in particular. And over the past 40 years, psychiatric nursing has been the only form of nursing that I've done. Um, at one, at some point, it became obvious that I really wanted an academic career, and I decided at that point that if I was going to do a PhD, I was going to do it in a subject that I really still loved, and that was history. By pure happenstance, and I'm happy to talk about the role of serendipity in creating nursing careers, but by happenstance, I ended up here at Penn at the 
exact same moment that Joan Lynott, Karen Bueller Wilkerson, and Ellen Baer were establishing um, the then new Center for the Study of the History of Nursing. So from the start, I had an intellectual home that I really felt I grew up in. And it has been the joy of my career to work as both clinically as a psychiatric nurse and in terms of my scholarship to explore different aspects of the history of nursing. So why is studying the history of nursing so important? It is something that I've been writing a lot about lately. It is easy to think about some of the truisms, you know, like George Santiago, those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And while there may be a germ of truth in it, I think history is one of the most critical methodologies that allow scholars to really confront the complexity of situations. The historical method does two things. One, it provides the distance of time. We are not writing about things that we are actively immersed in, but we are writing about things that we can approach through a perspective that gives us a little more distance from the topics. The second reason, which is almost more important, is that its method allows us to think about how all different variables are connected. We have made extraordinary advances in terms of our scholarship, thinking about how to isolate the one variable. And we do this primarily through quantitative and some qualitative studies, the one variable that is going to create the most amount of change. History is very different. It doesn't seek to isolate any one variable, but it encourages us to think about how social variables, political variables, variables about class, race, gender, are all interconnected and to really help us think about how issues in healthcare history or in nursing history are very complicated and understand if we want to create change, we have to grasp the complicated intersections of different kinds of issues at different points in time. I think one of the best examples of this is comes from scholars who have studied the intersection of both gender and race um, in military nursing. And I'm thinking particularly about Teresa Threet's work where she argues, and one of the things we do in history is we don't make unilateral statements, we make reconstruct arguments. She argues that when it came to the desegregation of the armed forces, it was easier for the armed forces in particular and the public in general to think about nurses being black women nurses than it was to think about nurses being men, that gender actually trumped race in the effort to desegregate the armed services and black women were inducted into the army nurse corps and later the navy nurse nurse corps a full 10 years before men were allowed to even serve in the reserve nurse corps so it helps us to think about 
not only how they're connected, but how social, political, racial, genderized variables worked then and still work now. Um, just telling that story brings up another important point um, in that historians try to be very precise about language. And even as I was telling the story of desegregation in the um, armed services, I was very careful to use the language of desegregation, not integration. And some historians, and I would be among them, have argued that full integration has never happened, that what has happened was we were willing to admit black nurses, willing to admit men, but never on an equal basis because of the differences in what is desegregation and the differences in what is integration. I think that's a really important point that most lay people don't recognize is that, you know, the argument is that desegregation happened such a long time ago. Why are we still having these conflicts? But as you point out, integration never really happened. And there's a very big difference between the two. And I think that's something that historians in particular attend to. That words are important. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So I understand you're going to be doing some work with the National Commission to address racism in nursing. Um, what is the goal there? The commission's goal in general is to look at how racism um, still is perpetuated within nursing, both by nurses and nurses in healthcare systems and to create strategies that will combat it. And it is a multi-group commission of, I don't know the exact number, six or seven nursing organizations that have pooled resources to report on the status of racism in nursing. And I believe their final report will be out in May. As part of their deliberations, the commission quite correctly, I might add, decided that they needed to know more about the history. So they approached Dominique Tobel, who is the director of um, the Center for Nursing Historical Inquiry at the University of Virginia. And I, who is the director of the Barbara Bates Center for the Study of History of Nursing here at Penn, to do a white paper of sorts on the history of racism in nursing. Our timeline was necessarily short because they needed um, first a draft and then a final version of our report to inform what they will be producing in May. So we couldn't do, we, we, were, we eagerly accepted the challenge. Mindful of one of the limitations is that we had to depend on what scholars have already written about racism in nursing. We think that is important because there is a large body of research, particularly, although not exclusively, on Black women and healthcare, Black women and nursing, which I think most nurses are not aware of. So we agreed to do a review of the existing literature, which covers Black nurses, which covers Native American nurses to a lesser extent because we don't have a lot of research done on Hispanic nurses. And since the issue was racism, we deliberately decided not to cover men in nursing. So we're, like most researchers, we're very aware of what the strengths and weaknesses of the analysis is. So we have completed our first draft and we're awaiting 
feedback from other members of the commission and nurses in general, because we're very aware, both Dominique and I are very aware of our own, what we call positionality. Uh, we may know the content, but we are very aware that we're also writing as white women. And we are eagerly awaiting feedback from other members of the commission and other members of nursing about their perspectives. How do you think your positionality as a white woman colors your view of the research that you were referencing? Well, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is not only our positionality, but we're also very aware. We try to be as aware as we can of our blinders. So I've been doing this a long time. And one of the things that has been absolutely amazing to me is how my own blinders have blinded me to the structural racism that's embedded in what we call nursing, nursing's origin story. And that, of course, is the story of Florence Nightingale and her tra travels to the Crimea and the establishment of modern nursing. We have always been very, very aware of how this has been a white middle class women's story. And one of the things I argue in some of my work is that one of the main achievements of Florence Nightingale was her closing the door on men in nursing because there was a long tradition of men nursing, particularly in epidemics and war before Florence Nightingale. And there was no tradition. It, that tradition disappeared after Florence Nightingale. But, um, and I will credit a doctoral student from Canada, um, Natalie Doucet, with um, doing a blog that all of a sudden opened our eyes that we've been concentrating on the middle-class women's part of the story. And even though we kind of acknowledge Nightingale was white and we acknowledge that Mary Sicole, a Caribbean, a Black Caribbean English nurse, was also in the Crimea. We never paid attention to the racism that was part of the story and to how Nightingale was very embedded in the mid-19th century racism and colonialism that was very much part of in the, what was called the English Empire. And so now, even though there are no new letters from Florence Nightingale, no new sources on Florence Nightingale, we are now all very aware that the issues of structural racism that exist in nursing really dates back to the founder and that many of the educational structures she established, many of the imperatives around what nurses do actually have embedded in them elements of structural racism that we still carry on today. We still have a lot more work to do in exploring this, but all of a sudden, you know, one set of blinders have been lifted um, and it'll be really fascinating to see what comes out of it. So we still have, you know, much more work to do in this area of how Nightingale's reforms were helped to embed elements of structural racism into nursing. And we're getting glimpses of this actually from literature on the work of enslaved Black women, um, particularly in the South. And this work suggests that the work that enslaved Black women did, valuable work, um, tending to the sick, breastfeeding white babies, 
came to be characterized as menial versus more highly thought of critical analysis of what was going on. And these historians are pointing the way for us to start thinking about how the body work, the turning, the feeding, the ventilation, which we're discovering in the COVID epidemic is so critical to recovery now, since we still don't have a cure, but how that body work has been characterized as menial and not as important as the kind of intellectual work that is also part of nursing practice. Yeah, I feel like that that carries a little bit through to today as well. Yeah, that, you we know, still, I think, have a tendency to devalue what we um, in our field called the body work of nursing. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode, and we'll be back with more in a few minutes after this quick break. Soothing Sense supports the Amplify Nursing podcast. Nurses are busier than ever, with even more pressure to create positive perceptions of care while keeping risks low. Queez Ease by Soothing Sense was designed to do just that. Created by a nurse anesthetist, Queez Ease is an innovative aromatherapy intervention that helps manage patient nausea and discomfort without IVs or a physician's order. It's entirely drug-free and non-drowsy, it smells great, and it comes in a groundbreaking inhaler system that patients can use all by themselves whenever needed. Request your sample kit today at soothing-sense.com medical. What, how do you think we can go about retelling the story, keeping in the, the critical points that, that Nightingale did help to propel nursing forward? but also highlighting or at least acknowledging the detrimental thought process that she had. Well, I think this is what history does so well or history that is done well can be so important because it doesn't have a need to reduce important people to one dimensional biographies. Nightingale, to continue with this example, was as much a um, heroine of the story as she was someone who embedded in the story particular biases, particular ways of thinking that may not be, um, that we need to acknowledge if we're going to move forward with our agenda of social justice and anti-racism. It helps nurses recognize that their legacy has its own contradictions. And I am thinking now of what we talk about in the white paper, which is midwifery practice here in the United States. United States is one of the few industrialized countries that doesn't have a strong tradition of midwifery practice. And that is very much because of nurses embrace in the early 20th century of a scientific model of healthcare. And that scientific model had no place for what was then seen as lay providers. It created a kind of divide between professionals and those that were characterized as lay people. And that kind of divide, I think, still persists. And it illustrates 
in our paper how nurses contributed to that. And one of the reasons we have no strong tradition of midwifery practice in the United States is because early 20th century public health nurses joined with physician colleagues to basically drive midwives out of practice because they joined with physicians to consider them as unscientific. And the other piece of that story is nurses at the time believed and they sincerely believed they were practicing what we would now call according to standards of the best evidence. So it also calls into question how we evaluate evidence. And I think in the end, we'll create a stronger voice for nurses who are looking to, to consider what areas are problematic in our practice. So it opens a window for more critiques of current nursing and healthcare practices. Yeah, I can. I recall at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, the Flexner Report, which was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation to kind of look at and restructure medical education. Are you saying that nursing kind of got swept up into that as well? And we followed our physician colleagues following those recommendations? I Yes, in, okay. in short. But again, I have to point out it's more complicated. Because what historians point out is the Flexner report really didn't have anything to do with changing medical practices. They had already changed. Um, historians describe the Flexner report as a part of the kind of muckraking journalism that was popular at the time. But medical schools were already closing. Medical schools had already switched to a more scientific in terms of biochemistry, microbiology, laboratory-based practices. However, the Flexner Report was still important um, because nurses felt that if they had a similar report, it could go a long way to increasing the numbers of rigorous nurses training schools that were teaching science, that were teaching microbiology, teaching nurses how to act on science and eliminate other nursing schools, particularly, but not exclusively, nursing schools, and we're talking about a segregated healthcare system at the time, that were educating Black nurses in Black hospitals or educating men in psychiatric institutions. The, goal, the subsequent Goldmark report, depending, again, we make arguments, and I make the argument that the Goldmark report was actually very successful in establishing baccalaureate education as um, needed for some nurses. And that is, I think, the critical variable. And as a result of the Goldmark Report, we got some of the first special built baccalaureate programs in nursing at places like Yale, Vanderbilt, University of Toronto in Canada, but also across the globe. Um, when the Rockefeller Foundation devoted itself to establishing these programs. But it didn't lead to the same kind of mythology in nursing um, that the Flexner Report did in medicine. And so we're also interested, in, historians are also interested in how these myths are created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super. So the Flexner Report is actually medicine's origin story. Right. Um, in the same way that Florence Nightingale is nursing's origin story. And how can you unpack these stories if you're looking at how to deal with issues of structural racism? And it is well known the Flexner Report led directly to the closing of many Black medical schools. 
Yeah. Why is it that Florence Nightingale's story is the predominant narrative that we tell in nursing and how do we change it? Um, It's a great story. Florence Nightingale is actually of interest not only to nurses, but she is the single most written about female actor in history. And about every 10 years or so, you get a new biography of Florence Nightingale, which is a huge challenge because I don't know quite what the technology was at the time, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from Florence Nightingale or to Florence Nightingale in archives all over the world. Here is a woman in Victorian England who rose to the heights of popularity, who rose, she was very connected with the government and as long as a liberal government was in power, she rose to positions of enormous influence. Um, There are some historians who write that Nightingale never intended to be known as the kind of founder of modern nursing, that her real interest was in the health of the British Army, and nursing was secondary to this. But it was a story that just captured the imagination across the globe of women who were looking to do something meaningful and still captures the imagination. And I don't know that we need to demote Florence Nightingale, but we need to be very careful about calling someone a first. And this is what scholars of Mary Sicole point to, but we need to be, to bring new questions to her story about how one of the reasons she was so lionized was she also reified dominant positions about race, about uh, women's role in the colonial empire that helped Britain rise to such power in the mid to late 19th century and why she was lionized here in the United States. At the same time, the United States was also trying to come to terms with whether it was going to be a colonial power. Um, And this brings us to things like the Spanish-American War, where Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, for different lengths of time, became American colonial possessions. Florence Nightingale, I think, will always be important, but we need to bring new questions to her story that will help empower nurses to to not only look at what nursing can do, but also to look to how we can create sources of power outside the discipline. And I think it's these sources of power that exist for us outside the discipline that is going to be really important as we move forward. The other point I want to make is, and I make this a little more clearly in another paper I have um, that will soon be published that looks at the history of medicine in relation to the history of nursing. And in this paper, I do argue that nursing and medicine are like two sides of the same coin. They're very tightly linked. But I also make the point that if we are going to be serious about our commitment to equity, to diversity, to social justice. We have to move beyond just looking at these issues in terms of numbers. How many nurses of color are there in the discipline? How many nurses from first-generation backgrounds do we have in the discipline? This is necessary, but it's not going to be sufficient. 
we have to also layer on top of that. How do nurses access sources of power that exist outside the discipline? How do you think we can reconcile and diversify nursing with Nightingale's, you know, implicit racial bias that she had? She was very much a, a very in line with the British Empire's philosophy at the time of colonialism and outreach for the British government and not super concerned with indigenous people or anybody who wasn't British at the time. So how do we reconcile those two things if we continue to keep her as somebody who's so important in the story of nursing, but yet has this other underpin? Here's where I say, historians analyze the past. We do not predict the future, but that is a bit of a cop-out. One of the things is that this new critique of Florence Nightingale has been very controversial. In in our particular historical community, there are some people who think it's anathema to raise any issues about Florence Nightingale, and it's gotten quite heated. So we have to be prepared for conflict. And I think historically, I would argue that nurses have not been great when it comes to the conflict that's inherent in reaching for power. I mean, we need to be able to defend our position head on. The other thing is that just because we acknowledge someone who has been important has intrinsic flaws does not inevitably dethrone them but it might change the kinds of questions we ask. So for example, one of the questions that I am very interested in is why did Florence Nightingale become so important? We, have, we had other models in the Crimea. We had Mary Sokol, who was also in the Crimea opening hospitals. So why was it so important that it was Nightingale, not Sokol, that becomes American nursing's kind of origin story? So it will change the kinds of questions we ask. So it's not an either or in history. And that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about doing history. It is not a story of winners and losers. It's a story of really complicated issues coming together when we ask new and different questions, even if it's of the same sources that have been around all the time. I don't know where this will lead. I hope it will lead to more openness. And we write about this in in our white paper, a more openness to different ways of knowing that as important as the scientific model has been, and I will never deny the importance of the scientific model. um, I give thanks every day that the scientific model has produced the vaccines that I hope will see us through the COVID crisis. So it doesn't involve at all a devaluation of that, but I hope it might open us up to other ways of knowing that are based on experience. I for example, have been following the literature on, to some extent, on intuition in nursing and how some nurses just know something is going wrong, even before they have the tangible data to prove it. I would argue that's not intuition at all, but that is building on nurses' experiential knowledge of how a course of illness is supposed to progress so they can detect deviations long before we see them in blood pressure uh, values or blood counts or things like that. So it might recalibrate 
different ways of knowing, um, which in some cases might include indigenous knowledge, as well as experiential knowledge and other kinds of knowledge we haven't even reckoned with yet. Um, we're coming close to the end of our time, and, and I really appreciate you coming and talk to, uh, talking with us. And I know that, you know, you're um, a busy woman. We were just talking about how we were all jumping from meetings to meetings today. <laughs> so is there anything else that you would like uh, our listeners to know about what you're doing before we go? I'm happy to talk more to any listeners. Um, come to classes, come to group meetings. Um, they can just reach out to me. My email is on the Penn website. The only other thing I would like to leave listeners with is a sense of the importance of history. It is, we go through periods in our own history. And I think the value of what historical research can bring to any conversation, any kind of deep analysis of what's going on in healthcare, as well as in nursing, has been somewhat devalued lately in favor of a biomedical model. And when I look at devaluation, I think about who's funding history, how is it integrated into practice, how is it integrated into curriculum. And I think we're going through a phase where we're putting all our resources into a single model that is looking for the single variable I mentioned early that is likely to produce change. I think history allows us to think about a similar question and be a counterpoint. And we are missing something if we don't value what historical analysis can bring to the conversation. I am in particular delighted that we were asked to do this white paper by the National Commission on Racism, because I think it will, I hope, it will enrich discussions that what we are now trying to struggle with in terms of structural racism has its own history and is influencing what we do and how we think. And unless we can acknowledge that, look at that squarely, I think we're going to try to dismantle racism with one hand tied behind our back. So I'm particularly delighted that the commission is broadening it's focused to also include history, and I would encourage those in healthcare and in nursing in particular to think about doing the same. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going? That's amazing. This is this is episode one of season five. Can you believe we're on season five? No, I can't believe we're on season five. And what a way to to get shot right out of the barrel with this interview with Dr. Pat D'Antonio. Yeah. I mean, the work that she is doing, um, writing up the white paper around the history of racism in nursing, you know, it's what we ended season four really talking about who gets to tell the story of nursing. How does that lens and that narrative get formulated by people in power. And so, you know, I think it was a really interesting conversation that you had with her. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I think that, you know, we, and, and Dr. D'Antonio acknowledges that she's coming at this from a position of privilege as a white woman, but I don't think that she should be the only person to tell the story. I think that we need to open up opportunities for Black nurses and nurses of color to tell their own story, but 
I also think that someone as well-respected, as powerful, as so well invested in the history of nursing as Dr. D'Antonio, I, I think it's incredibly important that somebody like her also tell the story because that's, I think, what opens the door and gets people to start to talk about it and discuss it. And I guess what's interesting is it it's written by two white women from their lens, but really it's examining the history of what has already been written in nursing. Because, you know, she mentions they did a extensive literature search and really analyzed what's already out there and how they sort of brought all of that together. And um, it'll be interesting to see the response it gets. Yes. Like I said, we it's not that we want just one person to tell the story or one group of people to tell the story. We need the story to come from the people who are living the experience. Agree. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. With special thanks to Jonathan Zhu for his assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.